This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, welcome once again to the only podcast by and for fans of David Lee Roth, the DLR Cast. I'm joined as always by my partner in crime and speculation and journeying through the abyss that is rumor, innuendo, non information, and more, the one and only Darren Palchowitz. Darren, how you doing, my friend? I am sweaty, but I am good. Uh, it, is it hot and crazy humid, like Every, where you are? Everywhere. Quick aside, I was on the phone earlier today with the UK, and one of our tech support folks was saying that when he's been dealing with them, their internet keeps slowing down because it's morbidly hot over there too. So it's everywhere. The yeah, climate I is burning. All uh, crazy from the heat. <laughs> I, set, I set that right right up for you. So speaking of crazy, a lot of craziness in DLR land. I'm not even where do we begin when we last left? Dave had a new song. We're coming off the uh, the insider transcribed interview from a Van Halen blog that was somebody close to David Lee from what we figure out. Yeah. And then we've got the Rolling Stone journalist. I'm sorry, the former journalist whose texts and emails was a feature in Rolling Stone a couple of weeks back that just that just went crazy viral all over the place and was right. huge press. And then in the midst of all that, you know, you've got the reunion that the tribute that's not a tribute point fingers pointed Dave by by other people, mostly Eddie Trunk. Then am I getting this straight? Then we have the song uh paint uh what is it painting by the moon painting of the moon i'm I'm spacing here uh just barely a what barely a week or two ago for those of you who have are just <laughs> tuning in yeah. uh another song from the erstwhile john five sessions we're thinking and pointing at the moon i keep saying we, painting because at least with a painting we can confirm they are from the john five sessions because we had a couple of listeners send the spotify screenshot that says written by David Lee Roth and John Lowry, which is John Five. Of course, John Five. Name. And being that John Five is really, really busy with Rob Zombie, he has the Nikki Six band called L.A. Rats. John Five, like he also had a solo album in the last year and a live album. Oh, yeah. Year that. He's not riding with Dave. This is old material. It's got to be, yeah. yeah. He's on tour with Zombie. And if he was writing with Dave, some that would have leaked. That would have been out. That would that somehow that would have got out. So speaking yeah. of Dave, this very past week, Dave finally, uh, Dave finally, three weeks after the Rolling Stone, what two to three weeks finally after the, that Rolling Stone piece came out with the former right. journalist was emailing and texting Eddie. One of the quotes in there was him saying that Eddie said that Dave said <laughs> that. Uh, Jeez, uh, what was it? ACDC fans were uh, illiterate. Was that it? Truly. And uh, hates, sorry, Roth only likes dance music and hates bands like ACDC, claiming that Roth calls the band's fans culturally illiterate. Well, yeah. finally, <laughs> Dave responds in basically just an enumerated list. Yes. <laughs> Yes, where he says he that's not true. He loves ACDC. He doesn't think that anyone's fans are culturally illiterate, and Eddie is culturally illiterate. Am I misquoting yes. that? That um, that was pretty much it. Um, that is it was, so tone deaf and horrifying. Like we we know as as Dave diehards, like Dave thought that would be like a funny that third line. 
Like, I'm not this, you're this. Like, he thought that that was a real zinger. But that is the most tone-deaf, stupid, backfiring joke that people are going to take literally possible. Right? That, that, yeah, that's, when that first came out, I just, I just looked down at my shoes and went, ah, oh, man, read the room, bro. This is, it just, it certainly doesn't read well on the page. I don't know why you bother responding anyway, let alone three weeks later. Just leave it be. And it, it, it's just, it was very strange to me just the way it came out. I'm a, it, and then ending with uh, support the troops, I think it said, right? Was that it afterwards at the very end? Yeah, like, okay, to play devil's advocate here. You go, okay, how is Eddie Van Halen culturally illiterate? Let's see, classically trained, uh, so he knows classical music. He likes ACDC, so he likes harder music. Okay, he was born in Europe, the Netherlands, who, let's, let's go with a positive stereotype there. How many more cultures are more culturally aware than the Dutch? The Dutch are among the well, best. <laughs> I think he means more from, I would bet he sort of meant, I read that as kind of a pop culturally illiterate. Eddie was famous for not having any clue what was going on in most music besides his son and going to a tool show, right? He hadn't bought an album since, well, it was, what was the last album? So. What's that? So by Peter Gabriel. Right, right. I mean, he pretty much grew up listening to what? Uh, whatever the band was playing and Eric Clapton for the most part, right? Right, right. I can remember uh, several anecdotes from, was it, I'm not, I can't remember which book it was, where Dave brought brought Eddie to a Cool in the Gang concert. I mean, yeah, he was European, sure. Uh, I don't, I don't, but I think as far as paying attention to what's going on in the mainstream, I don't like to use the word illiterate, but Eddie didn't care about that stuff. I nor nor did he know about it. Does that make sense? So the actual quotes were he wrote, I've always loved ACDC. I've never said the name one's audience. Number two is, is numerated. Number one, I always loved ACDC. Two, I've never said the name one's audience was culturally illiterate. I said that Ed was culturally illiterate. And then he added, God bless our troops. So there you go. That The word illiterate just hit me like a rock, man. Yeah, th this was worse than a bad look because... You know, there's there's like 10 things we'd rather hear Dave talk about, like the status of the John Five albums, the the Van Halen tribute. Uh, what's in the archives? Um, are you retired? Or are you not retired? Do you have more gigs? The Edom and Smile Band reunion show that got canceled six, seven years ago. Is that going to happen? Your paintings. What's coming up next? Your website is outdated. The Roth Project. Like. Ink the original, anything, Dave. And this is what you use your time and energy for. Uh, you know, we we have a great listener who's who's been on the show, Steve Harold. Uh, yes, we hello, Steve. From the Heat screenplay episode. And we were, you know, messaging offline. And he's like, you know, it's becoming harder and harder to be a Van Halen fan. And at first I went, oh, that's, that's Steve, you know, being Steve. And then I thought about it and went, he's right. He's right. It's harder and harder to be a Van Halen and or Dave fan when things like this happen. Or do you think I'm overreacting? Uh, I don't even I I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I don't want to say you're overreacting. I'd say it's it's a visceral reaction to that when we talk about all the time when. 
people we love and our heroes that we spent so much time listening to and following and just yeah from a really listen what is it the tau of dave i i mean he's no doubt a really smart guy i mean there's yeah. a lot i've i must say i've kind of learned from the guy and have admired for a long yeah. long time increasingly the last five or six years it's harder to do that man sometimes it's just harder to justify that and we don't know why that might be and we don't know what's the truth what's a different kind of truth oh what isn't the, what isn't Oh. What isn't what isn't the truth? This just didn't need to be. If indeed this was him, which we're assuming it was, why would you do this now? Two weeks afterward, no one gave a shit about this interview anymore. It passed. It went yeah. right. You know what I mean? It was three weeks past, and the usual arguing. If you went on, if you saw all the message boards, the usual at various places, the usual arguing, the the usual debates. I should say not arguing. Went back and forth on this and. And remember, too, that came right on top of that Dave or Van Halen inside, or at least somebody who had a lot of a lot of contact with Dave through the years, really painted a much different picture as far as the relationship was. Yes. That gets all blown up now. And in lieu of that, or I should say in reference to that, you know, one of the things that came out was how often he talks to Alex. <laughs> what was that phone call like after this? What do you mean you called my brother illiterate? No, I did, I meant culturally illiterate. No. Wow, what I'm talking about, what I meant was. <laughs> you get it? I mean, what was yeah. the fucking point? Why do this, man? Yeah, well, going back to the deep throat secret source from the Van Dave and Dave Unchained podcast, um, I was super ready to out who I thought that person was. And people who speak to Dave and Dave they are saying that Dave and Dave have denied that who I think is the insider is the insider. So as a result, anything I say, because you gave that legal disclaimer up front, we can't be sued for libel or slander. <laughs> so that said, I thought that the insider, without a doubt, was Lisa Roth, Dave's sister. And that was based on a few things. First, that this was a person who was there in the 80s, knew the inner workings of Van Halen, was around the Vegas cancellation. She knew which members of the band and crew had COVID. Uh, people I spoke to who were going to be performing in that show wouldn't even tell me who had COVID. So this was super guarded information in all that. Then we thought that, hey, it's it's a person that's not a musician based on how great they're saying Dave is on the piano and guitar. You and I have had arguments about that one. But it was just like every sign possible. This was also a person that clearly still loved Dave as a person, whereas just about everyone we've ever interviewed has basically had a falling out with Dave at some point in time, whether they were a manager a handler, an assistant, an editor, a collaborator or a co-writer in the band, et cetera. Everyone has their falling out except the family. So that's where I was going with all that. And I think that even if it was his sister, they're still going to say it's not a sister because they're not going to go ding, ding, ding. You solved the mystery. <laughs> well, my thought that it wouldn't, and let's not get too far off track here. Cause I got a couple of things I want to bring up. My thought was that it, it, it couldn't have been because why would you? You've been silent, quiet all these years. There's no reason for you to do this, let alone go out on a blog. I mean, go out on a podcast. I mm -hmm. mean, and give your blessing to it. I just, I, 
I just it to me it seemed really far fetched that it was anybody blood related. It just didn't make sense why now and or why period. Yeah. Well, okay. We It was super interesting. I give them props for that, man. I mean, I hung on every freaking word of that of uh, of that episode cuz it was it opened my eyes to a lot of things only for only for me to be slapped around <laughs> at, at, with the Rolling Stone uh, the Rolling Stone article with the former journalist who developed a relationship and a friendship with Eddie. So well, all of that said, so well, go on, I'm sorry. Go, uh, sorry to cut you off. You have to go, which Rolling Stone article that confuses you about David Lee Roth? Because there's two. <laughs> I mean, that this uh, is the article. I, I, we're eventually going to get there. But that is like double the like, this is a bad look for Van Halen kind of thing that you get there. It, it's like most bands I find have two camps that are kind of feuding like oasis there's the liam gallagher and there's the noel gallagher and everyone chooses their sides and you get the kinks and it's like dave davies and and ray davies you have that and you get aerosmith well steven tyler goes there so joe perry goes there and you go journey and you go neil sean feels that way so steve perry feels this way in this case what do you have four camps in van halen <laughs> five yeah. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> I'm losing track of it. So that's a good segue to the next Rolling Stone piece that came out and made a bunch of news. Uh, it was an interview with Wolfgang, made a bunch of news for what was said about the tribute. That's not a tribute. That's not going to happen, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's it was going to happen. But according to Wolfgang, it's not going to happen because Jason Newstead blew it. Wh- what? No. Wait, yeah. how'd you get how'd you get that out of it? When now he, he well, because all the headlines said something different. All the headlines kind of blamed it on Dave without him saying Dave, because the writer said, was it a certain three named individual that did? Yeah. This? And Wolfie didn't say no to that. But when you read the the copy in there, Wolfie sounds pissed that Jason New said mentioned it permanently, like mentioned it as a concrete thing. And that created some tension to it, too. Go on. (laughs) When you think about it, we had zero concept that anything was going to happen with Van Halen on any level until that Jason Newstead interview came out. Then, you know, within a couple of days of that, there was the Joe Satriani thing where because he was slated to be part of it, he was asked about it, too. And he said, well, I don't know. We were kind of surprised that Jason said anything about that. And so they both kind of threw Jason Newstead under the bus. And Wolfie's on that same uh, page with the Newstead public shaming. It's, man, this whole thing just is a is a mystery wrapped in a riddle, surrounded by enigmas. Where, where am I going with this? Well, of course, the headlines were all that. that um, yeah, I'm looking at the interview right now. There was an attempt at doing something. I don't like to speak negatively about people, but there are some people that make it very difficult to do anything when it comes to Van Halen. So after be- And he says, he goes on to say, after being in Van Halen for a long time, I really have strived to have an environment where there is no walk-on eggshells. There's no personality that you have to deal with. It's just guys make- having fun making music and just having a good time. And then <laughs> uh, there was always some stuff that gets in the way from just making music and having a good time. And I think that's what happened. And then Brian Hyatt, the writer interview, goes, let's see, how can we decode that? I just I would love to just sit here and say everything and say the truth. He says there are plenty of interviews my dad did where he straight up just said everything and people hate him for it and thought he was lying. So I could just say shit. But people have already decided how they feel about things. Facts or not. 
so I can say the facts, but they might may not align with how certain people feel. I know how Van Van, Van Halen fans get. That's an understatement. If ever there, if ever he, if any person knows, it's him. And bravo for the way he deals with it. I got to tell you because it's admirable. He said they are very motivated by which specific people they like in the band. Michael kind of made mention that stall because of Dave, right? And then in whatever interview that was, nobody ever brings up, or no, there's certainly no one has been asked, but nobody is, no one's asked Michael, and maybe you wouldn't say it all, but nobody has brought up, if it's Dave, what are the sticking points? Is it money? Is it his voice? Is it billing? Is it headlining? Is it, do you know what I'm saying? I totally know. Is it just sheer procrastinating? Because if Dave is nothing, when he puts his mind to it, wants to get something done, it fucking gets done. Right. Um, I think, and the, the, the key words are I think, but this is based on speaking with a lot of people, that Dave does not like to do things that are videotaped and permanent and etched to memory. And I base that on somebody I spoke with telling me that there was a show in either, either the 2012 or the 2015 tour that was filmed, totally in the can, done. And then meanwhile, the Tokyo Dome shows, I think if you read that book, Eruption, about Eddie, like, I don't think they really planned that as being a live album. It's more like they had the audio tapes of it, and it was a last-minute thing, and video wasn't filmed on it. So there's all that. If you look at how little Dave has done on camera in recent years, he's usually hiding behind the baseball cap and the sunglasses things of that. He didn't do EPKs for the last few tours. Um, a different kind of truth. He did the downtown sessions where he was a little hidden. They only did the tattoo music video. And then the she's the woman video was just etched together from like already in the can footage. So I think that there is a physical thing going that there's a limitation there. The permanent etched in history thing. That's a problem. And I think the main kicker is that they want Sammy represented in some form and Dave's never going to have him on stage. I mean, you remember the, the O2 or uh, the O3 tour? No, it was best it O2? of both best. I thought O O2, two, the Dave tour. Yeah. Best of both worlds tour. Yeah. I know that tour because I saw that that was a few months after my son was born. So that's how, I, that's how it gets into my head. So yeah. Got it. When they, yeah. when they, when they crisscross headlining. And well, the stories that Sam and Mike have always told is, and we should do a song together or two. We should do You Really Got Me on Stage together. And Dave always said, nope, not going to do that. He doesn't share the stage with other people. And this, this is something that we've spoken about on the podcast. After Skyscraper, the band be behind him was never about the band behind him. <laughs> it was just exactly. about... Dave. So I have to say him as kind of a selfish person and maybe one of his best attributes is that he's selfish. He that he is the star of the show, but you know that there's demands that he's going to want the disco floor <laughs> or things like that and they're going, "No, this is not about you. This is Eddie's show." Yeah. Well, that Rolling Stone article and getting back to what you were saying before, I mean, one Wolfgang says, uh, you know, Al's a brain. Al's been the guy forever, right? He's the dude. And their, their mentality has always been, if there's nothing worth talking about, unless it's happening, we're not talking about it. Right. right. So 
And it's it's an interesting, it's super interesting interview because he says right on, just because one person, Newstead, decided to talk about when they weren't supposed to, it fucked everything up. And then it said, was that really what fucked it up? That wasn't the end of it, actually. It was already not happening. And if someone were to assume that the main problem was a certain thing with three initials, what would you say to that? I would say, do your research on the history of Van Halen and come to your conclusions. Ugh. Yeah. Again, um, going back here, there's like, what does Mick Jagger want? And what does Keith Richards want? And they all kind of go there with like Ron Wood. He's going to be on the, the Richards side. Probably Charlie Watts was going to be on there. And Mick was going to be on his own side. But they would go, you know what? We're making a whole lot more money if we do this with Mick. Let's go back with Mick. But now we have the, the Wolfie being protective of Eddie Legacy camp. We have that camp. We have the Alex camp, which is comparable to the Wolfie camp, but it's still it's its own thing. We have the Dave camp. We have the Michael and Sammy camp. <laughs> we got four different camps uh, doing different things, which is insane. It's absolutely bananas. This might be the most dysfunctional classic rock band I've ever heard of, like more dysfunctional than the Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> the Ramones survived mainly by never talking to each other, right? Yeah. I mean, all Did, that time in a van, they never talked to each other. Do you know that story that like Joey and Johnny didn't speak for 20 something years that if Joey was in the front seat and Johnny wanted him to close the window, it'd be like, Marky, tell Johnny to tell Joey to shut the window. Like they wouldn't directly talk at each other. And it's not an exaggeration. <laughs> I've seen them both. I saw something a couple weeks, a week or two ago on YouTube. I stumbled across it was from some interview in the eighties, and it was both Joey and Johnny on the set on the interview. There, you would have thought they were each being they were each being interviewed separately. Yeah, even though they were together, and it was one guy talking to both of them. It was they didn't even acknowledge. No conversation between the two of them as part of that whole conversation. Anyway, yeah. you're right about dysfunction. It's. It's sad. It's confusing. If there was ever a time where you like to think, okay, here's an idea. Major tribute concert, all charity, one one concert, all charity, all everything going to charity, right. to a cancer charity. We're blowing up. We're doing it at uh, the Forum, whatever the hell it's in L.A., right? And, I mean, shoot, even put together a pay-per-view thing package or something, right? Or yeah. just blow it up on YouTube. YouTube will underwrite it, give you guys – uh, thirty million dollars for it. I'm sure Azov can work some sort of deal there. Get everybody together, and it's a tribute. And both Sammy and Dave, but Sammy and Dave don't go on until the last third of the concert. It's everybody, right? And keep check your egos at the door, and done. Yeah. Well, do you remember the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in '07? The Van Halen drama behind the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Most people just peg it as, well, Eddie was in rehab and, you know, they they didn't do it. And like the stories have kind of changed over time to, well, no, Eddie, Alex and and Dave all decided together they weren't going to do it. Do you you remember the insider interview on Van Halen and Chain that was brought up on that? Yeah, uh, another the what I believe to be true, which I've heard elsewhere is. Dave was like Velvet Revolver was slotted to do the Dave stuff and they were going to learn the songs. And he said, I want to do jump. And they said, well, we're not going to do jump. And 
he just was not game to do the song or two. I think that song choices with Dave are a big, big thing. He's not he's not eager necessarily to do his biggest hits. It's just these are the songs in my vocal range. This is what I'm going to do. End of story. And that's kind of why for years and years and years when he was a solo artist, Hot for Teacher was the opener. And then suddenly he stopped doing Hot for Teacher entirely. Why? It's high. It's not the easiest song to sing. The range has changed over time, and he kind of knows how to skate around the problems. Yeah, and knowing what a perfectionist he is, it's got to be tight. It's got to be perfection. It, it looks loose and crazy, but it's the tightest rock and roll ship ever, I think. Yeah, so it's really disorienting in a way based on how they can't get the stuff together. But if, if I can talk about something that, like, it's going to escape back to what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So over the, over the weekend, I went to see Chicago play with Brian Wilson at my local amphitheater, Jones beach. I'm sure you went there as a, as of a course. Kid. Yeah. And I'm sure Chicago was still an old person band when you were a kid playing Jones beach every summer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 55 years together, that band. Um, so the opener was Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. I love the Beach Boys. To me, Beach Boys and Van Halen, the two greatest American bands of all time. I, I, I will fight anybody I, otherwise. I'm a huge, huge Beach Boys fan to the point where I probably listen to those early, those early 70s brother records from 68 to like 75 more than anything else. When Dennis Wilson and Carl Wilson picked up the slack for, for Brian mostly and I love those records. I, I'm yeah. a huge fan of the Beach Boys' entire career, and I don't have enough adjectives to describe the genius that is Brian Wilson. Absolutely agreed. And I was going because I said, okay, you know, Brian Wilson's 80 or so. There's not a lot of tours left. Okay, this is 15, 20 minutes from my home. Oh, review comp tickets. We are going. And I always or I should say the last few years, we've seen so many of our favorite artists pass away untimely, you know, unexpectedly. And we go, oh man, I should have seen it. I should have gone to that tour if only I'd known. So that's why we went to see Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson, I'm not exaggerating. If he was not singing on the song, he only sang on maybe four songs. He was literally catatonic. I know. It's very sad. I. It was... I, the saddest thing I think I've ever seen in concert. And that got me thinking. I used to take the mindset of some blank is better than no blank. Now, in the case of Dave, who I loved the Vegas shows I saw, but he was not at his best. I kind of now wonder, is a not great Dave still what we want to see? Whether it's music or whether it's sports, there's the 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 best comparison is sports, right? Most people sadly remember Muhammad Ali tripping around and getting the crap beat out of him at the end there. Yeah. Well, or at least before I should. A lot of people remember that, but it's the second thing people might remember about Muhammad Ali's career. Basically, you hung on too long. You stayed too long. You yeah. got to know when to leave if you can't hit those levels. And most that you that you're used to that you used to that hit it's it's hard to say goodbye it's hard to walk away from it but uh, 
and nothing goes nothing lasts forever of course but maybe that's really part of it i think you got a you, you got a good point there i mean you at some point you don't expect the giant kicks right you don't you, you understand you can't do the jumps off the jump riser but when it's getting to be kind of more of a vaudeville stick and dancing because that's really all that there is or do you know what, not all that there is i'm being too harsh because i thought his vocals sounded pretty good when i saw him with kiss but at some point do you, how do you want to? What's your legacy? You want to be you want to be remembered as the guy who couldn't do it anymore, or the guy who did it and was amazing? I think that the best thing that he could do. A lot of people listen to the show say he should do an acoustic tour, and the reason I don't think so is because that brings his vocals to the forefront. Yeah, uh, people don't generally move around when they're playing acoustic, and Dave has used that in a way to distract you, you know, hidden in plain sight kind of stuff. What I think would be the ultimate thing if he were to hit the road would be a spoken word tour with a moderator, just letting him talk for two or three hours on stage. And supposedly that was going to happen around the Crazy from the Heat book that he was working with Henry Rollins or at least talking with Henry Rollins of, hey, how do I do that? And Hank, good old Hank, gave him some feedback. It didn't happen. But I think that Dave could talk for hours. He could sell one to 2,000 tickets, you know, do some small theaters, make a lot of money, and you wouldn't be disappointed at all on just hearing him blather for an hour or two. It'd be entertaining. I don't know if he's got, I don't know. If, boy, that would be the most far fetched thing. First off, a moderator, really? Okay, a person who's on stage who, uh, okay, you make a really good point. You took me off course there because like <laughs> the person can't interrupt him. He'll, you'll see angry Dave. You'll see flame shoe out, out of his ears for that. Um, I would say a person who uh, can give time cues to him. <laughs> or if it was like, He's going to talk for an hour and a half, and then he takes a couple of questions from the audience, and that person walks the mic around the audience. Like, I saw Norm MacDonald do that, and Norm MacDonald, kind of like Dave, there's no parameters of time or logic. Norm is going to do the exact opposite of what you asked him. And I think that that format, like, how could you complain about Dave if you knew that it was going to be an evening of him talking? Well, you're in for a marathon, man. <laughs> I don't know how you rein that in. I, it, it, it's you got me stumped, man. I, it hurts my brain just thinking how that could possibly be put together, because Rollins is almost as much stand up, to a point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rollins did that because I asked this to him in an interview or two about, hey, you know, your last album I think was 2001, 2004, something like that. Uh, you know, are you going back to music ever? And he's like, nope, that last album was the last stuff I ever had to say. I realized this format was better for me because I, I do have stories to tell and things to do. I mean, truth be told, he probably couldn't get a, a worthwhile record deal. And he kind of realized if you do the economics of a spoken word show versus oh. a concert, yeah. Um, you don't even have to travel with a microphone. <laughs> you could you could put in your rider. Okay, microphone, speakers, no sound check. We'll it see. Wasn't, it's the clock. It wasn't like Rollins' band was a gold gold album selling band, right? I mean, uh, they 
they got to a certain level, but never got really beyond that. And it wasn't really huge. I think the Wait album from from two from ninety two I think might have been a gold, but that was probably because Beavis and Butthead made fun of the song "Liar." That right. alone could sell a lot of records. And within within a span of five to six years after that, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, what's we're we're still in that same boat of going like, what's going to come next from Dave? Something, anything, nothing. You know, and and look at how quick that new song kind of came and went. Well, they all go fast because I mean, first off, he kind of he kind of killed helped kill it himself. Yeah. Because you'll respond to that, but you won't put even like a couple a paragraph out about the song that you dropped (laughs) on a Saturday night. (laughs) I'm a marketing and publicity guy. I've been in the record business. I I this none of this shit makes sense. From a publicity standpoint, if you got nothing good to say, don't say it. Why respond to that shit? There's no point to it, right? But then you do respond, but you you don't respond at all. To I mean, you don't, you, you, with the exception of Sunset Bar and Grill, which when you listen to those lyrics, never made sense to me no. as, never made sense to me for a tribute to Ed, Eddie. What should have been a tribute to Eddie was the link that you found, which blew me away to the song that John five talks about all the time. I, I want you to stop that sense with, and it never made sense to me. It like, you just stop it there <laughs> because <laughs> they don't make sense. Like D- Dave has been for a couple of decades now, he's been writing the smartest stuff that makes no sense whatsoever lyrically. Cause it's not about his life. It's not about anyone's life. He's, he's rhyming chair and there a lot of the time, but it sounded good at the time, but yeah, the, that that song. Nothing that could have nothing could have stopped us. That's the song that John Five talks about. And folks, go to YouTube. You can, I didn't. It's only got like three thousand plays, I think, it buried out there somewhere. But it's a little. It sounds like a thirty seconds live of it, right? Yeah. And Dave sounds amazing. That song. Yep, you can hear a little bit of damn good in there. The way John Five talked about. It. But even that little snippet of lyrics. As soon as I heard that, what did I reply back to you? I thought I said. This should have been the the song that Eddie ded- that Dave dedicated Eddie upon his passing. You did say that. I do agree. And then that also makes me think, wait a second. So there's that. Then I, I randomly found this thing a couple months ago. I never sent it to you. But um, Ralph, who was in Steel Panther, who was in the Atomic Punks, I found a recording from the early 2000s of him covering the song Bullethead from which wound up on a different kind of truth 10 years before a different kind of truth which means wait a second people had these demos and learned how to play these demos i think that if we knew the other john five song titles that these other recordings would be out there or are out there rather like it's not as close to the the vest hidden as we thought it was that's what I'm going. Agree, disagree. Um, slightly still confused, but <laughs> yeah. How did you find that anyway? By by the way, uh, somebody in one of the Facebook Pro Dave groups posted it. Uh, I would say one in every fifteen posts on these groups is a mind blowing, awesome thing. You've never heard of, never <laughs> seen before. And f- the other 14 are 
Dave's better than Sammy. You know, the childish debates that won't ever end or, you know, the person selling the bootleg photo of Dave with the short cropped gray hair smiling and, you know, uh, Comment on this post or we will kick you out of the group. And it's trying to sell you a, a bootleg T-shirt. <laughs> right. Those 14 and you get to the 15th and somebody will leak something really obscure like that. Um, him appearing on stage at the college football game in the mid 80s. Right. Or but, it's still on. It's still you can't get the DLR band Spotify, but you could you could find that bizarre charity single he did. That buzzy bop. Charity song, right? I mean, yeah, that's on Spotify for God's sakes. Why and how? But it gets back to what I was saying before. The more I think of it, this mate, you, you respond to that. This enumerate three bullet points for goodness sakes. Not yeah. much about nearly, nearly barely as long as your little as a retirement announcement. That was one of the bizarrest things ever. That <laughs> right. Um, but nothing to even give you a little insight, nothing about it wouldn't surprise me if all the songs got pulled down tomorrow. I'm with you there because right after this got posted, I checked Dave's BMI listing, not his body mass index, his broadcast music. What does BMI stand for? Broadcast music. Industry. Uh, I told created. Whatever it is, his his registry of songs that he wrote and his publishing re related to that. And this song was not on there. So somehow Spotify had who wrote it, but I guess he didn't assign publishing to register that. And we might have our next episode might have some other stuff that Dave has not registered or collected. That's a warning if you want to go down that rabbit hole. OK, but, well, uh, yeah, it's Another tease is I've been thinking about this a lot too, and that is if you, how I think Dave should put out all these songs. If my I got my, I've been putting on, been wearing my product, my old product manager hat, my old marketing guy hat, and thinking sure. there as a fan, there could be some really unique and cool ways he can do this. Versus, hey, it's Saturday at eight o'clock. That song just went up on Spotify, no notice, no nothing. Oh, yeah. by the way, three weeks later, yeah, now I'm going to reply back to that Rolling Stone article. Don't even I. I was going to say, don't get me started, but I've been going now for 30 minutes. So <laughs> on that note. <laughs> yeah, well, well, adding to that one other thing, new music in the U.S., it used to come out on Tuesdays. Now it comes out on Fridays. Right. He didn't even put out the new song on a Friday, right? It came out on a Saturday. I rem Yeah, like sometime in the evening. <laughs> so it's like it's who's looking for new music on a Saturday, by the way? Uh, I. I Did love the idea of it. I, I hear it. <laughs> I love the idea of a surprise. I love the idea of mystery, but you can still do that and inform the fans and have some sort of cohesiveness to it. Right. Do you get what I'm saying? A hundred percent get what you're saying. So it's like, he's not trying to please his diehards. He's not trying to please the Van Halen casual fans. He's not trying to please the Van Halen diehards. He's not trying to please his bank account. <laughs> It's, it's like the most counterproductive strategy ever that that's that's happening. It's bad PR. It's bad business. Uh, unless we're going to one find one day, we're going to find out that all the clues were hidden in plain sight. And like 
Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or something like that. Our, our golden ticket to get the John 5 album, you just had to click on this and look at that. <sighs> are, are, are we going to give the people an interview in, in, in conjunction with this episode? Can we do that? Yeah. Ne- next episode, we're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to give some product management advice. I got it. I got it all set, but right now we got a good interview. Mark LaFrance. I spoke with him. I think it was late 2021. Like this one's been in the can for, for a while and we got busy and a couple other things came up and we had to post it. But Mark sang backup on the little ain't enough album. He was one of those dudes who's out there in Vancouver, you know, when, yeah, he's been on. He, I've seen his name in the credits on a lot of credits. He's done a lot of backup background vocal work, Bon Jovi stuff and Lover Boy. That whole Bob Rock scene that ruled music. Yet we really don't know much about when we think about. It. So right, yeah. There's the. It, you know, it seems like a lot of producers have like those go-to guys. Yes. That are on a lot of credits that the heart that rock fans know, especially fans of those bands. You're like, oh, that guy sings about vocals on a lot of stuff. Mark's one of those guys. And the reality is that, like, we know his vocals, yet may have thought that that was the artist singing them. That that that's the best way I'm going to put it. He didn't sing Dave's vocals or anything like that, but he talks about singing on the Little Ain't Enough album. Well. It's a good one. Hey, 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 thanks for, for listening. That's the bottom line. Uh, <laughs> the bottom line is we don't know what's coming next besides this interview. And, and we will have another episode of the DLR cast. And thank you all for downloading and streaming and listening because we've seen some incredible growth and really, really appreciate that people appreciate what we're doing or at least checking us out for a little bit. Yeah, but I have one question before I let you go. Does this <laughs> we're the fifth Van Halen camp? Like there's the four uh, that are deciding what to do about the tribute camp, uh, show and then we're the fifth one? Because <laughs> I don't think we're in agreement with any of the camps. We're not in agreement with Sam and Michael. We're not in agreement with Wolfgang. We're different from Dave. We're different from Alex. We're camp five. I guess, and it sounds very wishy-washy, I guess, but I can understand... I'm not still vehemently opposed to what other camp. Do you get what I'm saying? I mean, I get it. No one's denying that Dave's not a handful to work with. My whole thing is it's about efficiency. Certainly this shit can get figured out. It did for the reunion. Yeah. I mean, the Foo Fighters had a tribute show to, to Tara Hawkins booked within like 60 days of his passing. And I, in no way do I say it was in poor taste the way that they're doing the Taylor Hawkins shows really, really cool. And other bands have been able to get their stuff together. It's not like there's these people are broke and they need the money. You know, they could do this for charity. It's not like they don't have the time. They've got the time. It's not like these are 25-year-olds that are going, oh, my career is over if I make the wrong step. No one needs this. This is just one of those, this is the right thing to do for the fans, for humanity, for everything. But in turn, oh. It's harder and harder to be a Van Halen fan, I tell you. It's get, it's getting late. It's getting late. <laughs> it's getting late. But thanks for listening. Thanks to you for 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 being nice and putting this all together, Steve. And ah. thanks to everyone for listening.
Yeah, nice to meet you, Darren. Likewise, uh, likewise. For, for the record, is it La France or La France? Are you classy? Uh, La France is, I mean, because La France is like, you know, I'm a Franco Manitobain from uh, from Manitoba, Central Canada. So I, I, La France or La France, either way, or La France. From from Manitoba, do you have the Order of the Buffalo Head honor yet missed out on you? <laughs> no, I don't. But I've been. I I still have a lot of family there. Yeah. So, uh, uh, oh, there's our Zoom meeting. Uh, uh, I have a lot of family. You know, I got like five sisters and a brother, and uh, you know, I think there's almost a hundred. Of course, my my parents passed away a long time ago. But whenever I go back to do shows, it's like, you know, I'm over a hundred people. These little these little great great uh nephews and nieces come up and my name is uncle mark right <laughs> it's quite entertaining Plat multi-platinum uncle mark uh, <laughs> so so you fall into the you check all the boxes for me and by that i mean you've been on all these albums that everybody hears every single day yet doesn't necessarily know it's you that was performing on them. And I love being able to tell the stories or at least get the stories related to all that because background vocalist, drummer, solo artist, you've composed for a lot of projects outside of your albums and other people's albums per se. I believe it's Scholastic that you composed a lot of stuff for. Yeah, I did over a hundred songs for their um, education pro program. I think it was here in Canada. I'm not sure if it made it into the States, but it was a fun project. I teamed up with Ian Cameron, another guy, and we'd they'd send us the poems, like these, but from different poets, and then we'd write, you know, all genre, all types of genres, and it was used to educate uh, kids. And they, you know, they did books, and I think they still sell the stuff online or whatever to schools. Like, cool, yeah. Well, so that said. I was looking because I started writing a book about David Lee Roth and I was trying to figure ah. who haven't I spoken with yet that has worked with Roth. And I was looking through the credits of a little ain't enough and said, backing vocals, Marco Franz. And I'm like, huh. Yes. And then I saw Motley Crue on your, oh, yeah. and went, Oh, he's a Bob rock guy. Is, is that correct? Well, yeah, I did a lot of stuff with Bob, but I did stuff with uh, Bruce Fairburn as well. I, did, mm. I think I did Poison and the Scorpions and a variety of work with him. Uh, and, I, you know, you just you ended up uh, Little Mountain Sound was kind of like the, the center of the universe. When I moved here in 1980, I was in a band called Crocus out of Winnipeg, not to be confused with the Crocus. The Swiss from, band Crocus. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. But, but ironically, this band Crocus had two ex Guess Who members in it. It had uh, Bill Wallace and Greg Lescu. Greg Lescu was uh, him and Kurt Winter were the original guitar players that replaced Randy Bachman, who ironically I've been playing and performing, working with, and recording with for the last 11 or 12 years. So it was. Uh, I moved to Vancouver and I, you know, first day I moved here, I had a meeting at the, with GGRP at Jingle House and bang, it just, everything exploded. And, and then the, the album sessions happened there, you'd be singing on a commercial and Bob Rock would walk by and say, Hey, uh, are you, Mark, are you available to do a, a session? I'm producing this band called uh, Blue Murder. Uh, oh yeah. Or, and then another time, you know, be, You'd be doing a uh, uh, the album session, and somebody would come by. One of the jingle people walk walk by and say, "Hey, you want to do a uh, 
we're doing a, a McDonald's ad tomorrow or whatever. So it, it was quite a, it was quite an amazing uh, time. This was, it had been 1980 and it was just starting to, to that, that's the city was especially the recording side performance live, everything lover boy was just, had just broken and they'd recorded at little mountain. So it really just exploded around that time. It sounds like to me, putting words in your mouth here, that you're very different than other people who've performed in the hard rock and heavy metal genre. And by that, I mean, most people in that genre, it's kind of like, that's all I do. Whereas your jingle work and your commercial work kind of trained you to, okay, what do you need? Yeah, I can do that. Well, that's that's funny because I've seen, you know, I mean, obviously doing stuff with Bob Rock and, and with uh, Mike Fraser, who, you know, I still see from time to time, both of them. But it's like we all came out of that the jingle thing because we were all working for GGRP and very and myself with other various jingle companies. So you were in the studio like every almost every day. So you really got used to working in the studio. Well, a lot of these bands that we come, you know, as great as they are musicians, they weren't in the studio anywhere near as much as we are. So they were able to, we were able to hone our studio chops, like, you know, uh, Bob Rock and, and Mike Fraser, you know, learned how to, how to uh, record a full orchestra, which came in handy when they started working, you know, with, with a variety of other even Motley Crue, I remember there was, I think the Karabi album, they used a full orchestra on one of the, on one of the cuts. So really it was, yeah, everybody got to develop their, their, their abilities by working in the studio. So you just go in and you would be relaxed. You wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't be all up nervous about, because, you know, if you haven't been in the studio for a while and, you know, a lot of people just get nervous. And if, especially as a singer, if you get nervous, your vocal cords tighten up, you can't, right. it's hard to sing. So the David Lee Roth Lily Ain't Enough album, was that a phone call in advance kind of thing? Or is that Bob Rock walking by and going, hmm, we need you today? Yeah, it was a, a lot of that with Bob got, you know, he, he sort of got it. You get comfortable with working with certain people. And so he used myself and Dave Steele a lot combined. We did a lot of stuff combined because, uh, you know, the, our voices complemented each other. And uh, yeah, we got to work. I think we worked on that for a couple of weeks or more. Weeks. And, uh, yeah yeah because we did the wow. whole album so because you know you go in one day and you'd uh you'd you'd be doing some stuff and then they'd work on some other stuff and of course you get oh can you come on in again we want some you know we want to try some new stuff and david was amazing to work with because a lot of the some of the other singers you didn't didn't necessarily participate uh, in the background vocals uh, but he would keep come in and sing with us and do stuff. He was a very colorful, very, I mean, as you all know, he's very colorful yeah. and very super guy to work with. I really, he's one of the guys that I really stands out. He was just super friendly and charismatic. And, and of course he had in little mountain was famous for their, uh, for their, the, the, the loading bay, which they used to, it was a huge room that they used for natural reverb. And it, mm -hmm. it, it kind of gave a little mountain sound there, the famous for the, for the drum sound there, because they used that. Yes. Room to see it. And, uh, but he had his wall climbing set up in the, in the, in the loading bay. So it's pretty funny. And of course you'd have that every time you come to the session he'd, in the loading bay, you'd get the wafts of, the herb 
Now, the, the herb has been referenced in other conversations that I've heard, but the, the climbing wall has not been referenced. That yes. is incredible. Uh, and, any idea how many feet or meters if we're oh, doing and it was, it was a pretty, yeah it was i think it was i can't remember but it was a pretty good sized uh loading bay that went up you know quite a few feet so i don't know maybe 50, i'm not sure what the exact measurements but it was you know it was, it was you you know it was like a climbing wall like a, you know and he'd go and he'd mountain climb he would go like he had this uh this uh his mobile home that he had parked that he, you know that he had i guess to travel around but he was a character too. The, the hotel room, he, instead of staying, he could afford any hotel, but he, he kind of chose this kind of weird hotel downtown Vancouver. And he, bla he blasted the wall out. So he <laughs> turned it into a makeshift penthouse or something. But that's certainly one of the most, uh, you know, charismatic and i mean that i mean that was funny i mean he had that 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 studio and i remember he told me i actually might i did a solo album mark lafrance album that paul dean produced yes for actually, I, yes exactly great talented guy yes yeah so he produced my album uh, out of nowhere which of which is available on on all of the platforms by the way i thought i'd give myself a plug anyway he uh uh he he had this uh uh, amazing I don't know he just had amazing personality just great guy that's really great to hear that he was actually in the studio involved because I've heard from other people he's recorded with that he wasn't there that the producer said okay we're going to add in keyboards and backing vocals so in this case it sounds like Dave trusted the process he trusted Bob to be leading the sessions he was, he was there. He was, I mean, the, the whole time I was there singing, like I said, there were a lot of album sessions I did where the band didn't even, sh it wasn't, didn't show up, you know, uh, not Motley Crue, Motley Crue there, uh, uh, Nikki Six and Tommy Lee were pretty hands-on. They were, and they were really, really great to work with. But uh, David Lee Roth was, he was, he was singing, he, he got in there and sang with us and had some great ideas and yeah, he was fun to work with. Any idea if you're on all of the songs per, on the album or if that was just, you know, mixed in in the special sauce at the pretty, end? I'm pretty sure that uh, we sang on, pretty, on everything. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. you are a notable drummer and I can only think of a handful of drummers that are also spectacular vocalists. A random one that comes to mind, the, the drummer of Warren, Stephen Sweet. He always did all the yeah. high backing vocals. Yeah. Say. Did you start off as a singer that learned to drum or a drummer who one day someone went, oh, you can sing, keep doing that? I, my first band I played, I, I played with um, uh, older guys. So uh, Jake Tapashaner is the guy who taught me how to play drums back in Winnipeg in the or you know late 60s it was like it was like it was like the liverpool of north america it was it was crazy there was bands on every street and anyway jake was this older uh, you know well, older than than i was so we'd always hang out his window and he'd had a, drums and he'd be playing along to the records and if we were lucky enough you got invited in and, and i got to know him and he and he kind of uh he had trying to get put together a band and he had uh, just this other guy, Gordon Nunn, and they, but they were looking for a guitar player, but they couldn't find a guitar player. So Jake learned how to play guitar. And he said to me, look at Mark, uh, this isn't forever, but uh, 
you're, you know, you're going to be our drummer till we find a guitar player. Well, that never happened. We kept, we kept playing. So I learned, and then he was amazed at how I had a, I had a high voice. So I started singing and drumming at the same time. It came, mm. it was, it just went, came hand in hand because, you know, the, the Beatles and, and I got, of course, they got me to sing all the high parts. So. That was actually going to be my next question. When I spoke yeah. with the singer Three Doors Down, the first album of Three Doors Down, he drummed and sang, and then they kind of realized, oh, no, we needed a guy out front. So yeah. they got another drummer. So I was asking him, I said, so you were the drummer at the beginning. Can you drum and sing easily? And he was basically saying, well, I don't know how guitar players play and sing. Drumming and singing is easy. For you, was it natural? Yeah, it was a very natural thing. And I mean, I, I mean, I was practicing a lot. I remember uh, singing in a yes tune, long distance runaround, and the and the, the the actual drumming is in five four, and the lead vocal oh. is in four four. So <laughs> I I learned, yeah, but you know, you'd learn, you'd split. It's like having another hand. So you just sort of you, you know, I spent a lot of time practicing. Uh, I always make jokes that uh, I quit school for for a year when I, I was going to private school in in Saint Boniface, Manitoba, which was just in part of Winnipeg. But uh, I ended up quitting school for a year. We had a rehearsal hall, and all I did was listen to Frank Zappa's 200 Motels and, and Jimi Hendrix and all the tunes. And I just sit there with this big PA and practice all day. <laughs> I ended up going back and finishing my education, but it, it, was, uh, it was definitely, uh, you know, it was very, for, very formative. You just go and practice for like five, six hours a day. That was, that was nothing. So. I mean, I still, even to this day, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I still, you're, 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 you never stop learning and figuring out, you know, things with your voice or, or drumming wise, because I, I do, I still perform while, well, of course, with the pandemic, I haven't been able to perform as much now, things right. are starting to pick up, but it was, uh, it really is, uh, you know, you're always trying, you always got to try to improve yourself. You can't just sit and, uh, some guys don't like to practice, but I, I kind of like to do it. I enjoy that kind of thing. And I even kind of got picked up guitar because I've been doing it during the pandemic. There's nothing else to do. So I just started, got myself a great mic and I've been doing sessions from my, from my home and writing a bunch of songs. And I've been releasing stuff. I have, uh, I think my fifth single is coming out uh, tomorrow, actually. So. Okay. We'll, of course, put plugs for that in the copy. Yeah, sure. So Mark, La MarkLafrance.com. So aside from, hey, well done on the plug end. Uh, <laughs> aside from the pandemic, it sounds like unlike a lot of the artists that you did session work for, it sounds like music never stopped for you. That even if it was freelance composing, freelance jingle things, it's been pretty consistent for 35, 40 years now. Probably closer to 50, but it's been very, yeah, it's, I've never stopped. I, I just, I mean, working with Randy Bachman, this man is like such a uh, inspiration. I mean, mm -hmm. I think he's coming close on, you know, he's 78, 75, 78, but you know, he's kind of close to 80, but he's, you know, it's like McCartney's like these guys just love, they're like kids in a candy store. They just mm -hmm. don't stop producing stuff and they're always excited about what they're doing. And, you know, and it just keeps that, if you keep that fire going, it'll give you longevity, I think. And, and, you know, it's a little late to take up plumbing. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another one of my weird obsessions. Canadian artists who were stadium acts in Canada and then here in the States have been like club bands ish. And BTO and the guests who are unfortunately in that category where Americans go, like, yep, I know American woman and taking care of business, but 
that's it. And yeah. I don't think that people realize how huge BTO and the guess who were in other countries. And another artist on your your resume, Chiliwack, another case of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then here in the States, people go, oh, I know they're hit. And you go, yeah. hit? <laughs> yeah. Well, BTO was, BTO actually was, was really big in the States. They actually, because they played tons of arenas and stuff. They were like one of the earlier bands to play arenas. Uh, I remember we were, we were waiting for a plane in, in San Francisco some years back and uh, the singer from Metallica, Hatfield? Hatfield? Uh, James yeah. Hatfield. James Hatfield, yeah. He found out that uh, that uh, Fred Turner, and he was like a huge fan of Fred Turner, you know, because he's, I mean, Fred's got a, he's got that amazing, you know, refrigerator voice that's just, you know, just amazing. And one of the, by the way, he's probably one of the nicest, uh, rock stars you'll ever meet the guy's just so humble and nice it's a totally not totally on a rock star wow well yeah. i feel bad for not realizing that i knew that bto did yeah. arenas no, they were huge thing, but there's certain bands uh not just canadian bands say grand funk railroad one of the biggest bands of an era period yeah. Yeah. and the legacy management has been kind of poor to the point that people go yep I I've, I think I've heard of them, and you go, you don't understand. That was the biggest band in the world for a while. They were huge. Yeah, we've done a couple of shows with uh, Mark Farter. Yeah, yeah, and he's still singing killer. He's still really, really good. He's still great. And, uh, and whenever great I post an interview with a member of Grand Funk, it gets huger numbers than whoever is in the Billboard Top 100 at the moment. Such a great legacy band. And with Randy, what was your connection to him in the first place? Well, I didn't know Randy back in Winnipeg. Actually, I met, I knew Burton Cummings uh, oh. uh, from the, and because uh, he used to come around and see, you know, he'd come out and see different bands back when we were first starting out in Winnipeg. And of course, when I played in Crocus, because we had Bill Wallace and Greg Leslie, we, I had, you know, that was kind of our band got a lot of press in Canada anyway, and did, we did, you know, all right. We had two albums out on Stony Plain Records, a smaller label out of, uh, Alberta that was distributed on London records at the time but uh, when I moved to Vancouver I met Randy not that long after and we did uh, some special events with him and eventually uh, Mick Delavie who's, who's my, my bandmate in uh, I have a corporate band as well cease and desist we play tons of corporate stuff Great and we're, name. we've Great been name. all we've been all over the world with that with that yep. particular band doing you know it's a great uh, cover band a fun band to play with well he started playing with randy and then randy about 12 years ago wanted to make its change and he brought uh, brent knutson and myself who's another bandmate in with randy and i've been working with him uh, ever since we're getting ready to do a we're doing the legends cruise coming up with uh sticks oh yeah and uh, uh oh there's a whole huge this lineup. Is the todd rungren one there there's that there's no. rock romance no this is the, well we've done we've done We've done the rock romance two years ago. Ironically, that was our last gig. We got home in February. That's when everything went crazy with the coronavirus. And we're heading out uh, uh, right around the same time in February to to do this this cruise. And I think Don McLean's on this and Don, uh, Don uh, Felder from the Eagles. Yeah. And uh, smoke on the water, guys. <laughs> Yes. 
Wow. So, just, so, just as you were doing that cruise, I was coming off of the cruise of Winnipeg native uh, Chris Jericho around the same time. So oh, wow. I was on a cruise, you were on a cruise and the world yeah. ended. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a, uh, it's those, those cruises are a lot of fun though. We, yeah. uh, it's, you know, they're five days and you, you know, especially we're having some pretty bad rains here. Actually, it's like we got a disaster happening here in British Columbia right now because we had these, it's probably similar to what happened in Seattle across the way. I'm not sure, but it's like really bad rains. And uh, in February, it's nice to get away because it's a rainforest here. It's like, it's uh, no snow, but while well, there's snow in the mountains, of course, but it's, it, it gets, pretty, gets pretty rainy here. Yeah, you're in uh, Canadian Seattle. That's the best. Yes, place. exactly. West Coast. Yeah. I mean, it's be- a beautiful place, but it's the, the winters can get pretty dreary with the rain. So it's nice to get out and do a cruise in the Caribbean. <laughs> for sure. Well, do you have time for two quick questions and then sure. I'll let you plug your music and then you'll be able to roam free. Okay. All the, right. The first one is the, the David Lee Roth album that you worked on that Bob Rock produced a little ain't enough. Word is that Bob Ezrin, fellow Canadian, was originally set to produce the album. Was that something that you ever heard of before? No, I I wasn't privy to that. I I just knew that, you know, Bob worked with him. And uh, yeah, I know that uh, when I did, I did a live show. I think that's what I was trying to get at. I actually did a live show where I warmed up David Lee Roth. I remember when we were in in, at the uh, Commodore. And I remember when we were in the studio, he was telling me, Mark, you ain't been to a backstage like mine ever in your life. And it was something to see. <laughs> was that Club Dave? That was Club. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it was quite, it was, it was like, uh, there was a lot of, a lot of females in the back, you know, it had to be over a hundred or something. There was, I'd never seen anything quite like that. <laughs> well, it was, next- it, was the, it was a true ladies band for sure. The next thing I'm curious about is, I've only talked about, you know, David Lee Roth and you'd brought up Motley Crue and your credits also include Cher and Loverboy, all that kind of stuff. Are there any songs that the everyday person has heard a thousand times that would have no idea that you're on, whether or not it was a, a ghost vocalist kind of role? Well, uh, I also did the cult um, Sonic Temple album, Fire, Fire Woman. So, wow. and I did, uh, uh, there's a band out of Canada called Glass Tiger, which yeah. doesn't even Don't fall under the, while I'm gone. and I sang on, I sang on that as well. Brian Adams, of course, of course, sang on that, but, uh, I sang wow. on, I said, sang backgrounds with, uh, Paul Jantz on, on that. And of course, uh, probably Poison, Unskinny Bop. Wow. Yeah, so if oh. you really if you really listen to the high parts and the, the two parts, all the, the high stuff is all me. It's funny a lot some of those bands like and Bon Jovi too, Keep the Faith album, which I did. They did they'll, you know, I mean I paid and they, a lot of stuff was like union sessions or whatever, but they they lot some bands didn't like to give credits. They'd give you an extra extra special thanks, even though you're actually singing, you know. Like it, 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 but that was the way it was. Like some bands didn't want to let their fans know that they didn't that they had to bring in other people to do stuff on their records. I guess I don't know. It seems kind of silly, but hey, history is full of that kind of stuff. Absolutely, yeah. The yeah, people whose be... name is on it is not the person who actually wrote and or produced and or performed it. Exactly. But it doesn't seem like 
there's any sadness or bitterness on your end because you've no, got no. to do. Well, I'm lucky too, because a lot of the, uh, in Canada, we signed on to the uh, neighboring rights regime. So all of my performances are registered and I, it's nice because I get royalties throughout the whole world. The States is a little bit, I mean, they were starting to get it with a satellite radio, but uh, the uh, terrestrial radio hasn't come on board like it has throughout the whole world. But uh, it really makes a difference, especially for, you know, you think of the amazing players that played on the Motown stuff and, and, you know, the, none of these guys, they're just start there. A lot of them are dead and they're just their states are finally starting to see some royalties from from the work that they did so many years ago. But uh, uh, anyway, yeah, it's uh, it, it's not it's I'm not complaining at all. I've had a I continue to have a wonderful life and 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 continue to create and love, you know, performing music. And and it's it's nice to know that I've, I'm, you know, I've been involved in so much stuff. And but, you know, you don't dwell on all that. You continue trying to do new stuff and and enjoy living. <laughs> well said. Well, I appreciate your time to say the very least. You said a new single might be coming out tomorrow. Give me the best ways that we as human beings can track your music in your career, please. Well, probably marklafrance.com, M-A-R-C, uh, L-A-F-R-N-C-E, just like the countryfrance.com, and on my label, delinquentrecords.com. You can you can find out everything about me and stuff. Just go to those two, and, and I'm on all of the you know the platforms, Spotify and uh, Apple Music and Amazon, all of the and I have Delinquent Records uh, uh, YouTube YouTube channel as well that has my videos and such that go back you know back in time and brand new stuff. So yeah, so it's all good. So marklafrance.com, delinquentrecords.com. There you go. 